Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Patrick Ruffini, the founder of Echelon Insights and a leading Republican pollster and political strategist. He's also the author of the new book, Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. I'm grateful to speak with him about the factors that have led to the realignment in American politics, what it means for Republican ideas and policies, and what the electoral consequences may be. Patrick, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Sean. There's long been a heuristic of American politics that also broadly applies to other Anglo-American countries, which is the Democrats are the party of the working class and the Republicans are the party of the country club. Uh, Let me start with a two-part question. First, was that understanding of American politics ever quite accurate? And secondly, when did it start to really change? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was accurate enough 20 years ago that you had the book by Thomas Frank, What's the Matter with Kansas, that talks about, and and, and what he describes is things starting to shift, where, uh, you know, you, uh, you see just enough people in the working class, in particular in the rural working class in a state like Kansas, start voting Republican. And as a result, his left-leaning readers are kind of wondering about this question, why? How could this be when it's the Democrats, he writes, that are the party of the poor, of the downtrodden? This is understanding, we, this we think is basic. It's part of the ABCs of adulthood. It's right on the first page of his book. So we start to see right then and there that that understanding starts to break down. At that in that moment, that was about two thousand post two thousand four. George W. Bush wins a popular majority, you know, on the backs of you know this really you're starting to see this urban rural polarization. But in fact, this realignment goes back sixty years or more. I mean, I would say, but sixty years is probably a good a, a good number, in the sense of in the nineteen sixties, you begin to see the first inklings of a realignment around um, socioeconomic status among whites. So in the 1964 election, look, Barry Goldwater gets trounced everywhere, but he doesn't get trounced as badly in these urban working class Catholic precincts as he does in the sort of wealthy cosmopolitan areas of New York City. Kevin Phillips writes about this in the Emerging Republican Majority right after that, which is uh, this harbinger, right? It's, it's clearly like it's not a majority coalition by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a harbinger of, of an altered class politics. 
1968, Richard Nixon runs, and it's a different coalition that elects him than had voted for him eight years before. And fast forward four years to 1972, and all of a sudden you're seeing you know, the Republican candidate for president win upwards of 70% in a landslide, in a reverse of 1964, but in a landslide win upwards of 70% of working and middle class white voters. So it really, that's the point when the, the two, like low economic, socioeconomic and high socioeconomic status whites began to converge. And things stayed pretty constant. And then in 2000, things start to move again, right? Where Georgia B. Bush actually exceeds margins among, let's say, non, by this point, we're talking about non-college educated whites versus college educated whites. He starts to do better among non-college whites than he does among college whites. And Donald Trump blows this wide open in 2016. But this is a continuation of a long process. And I don't think it's been exactly that way, maybe since the New Deal, right? But there has been an erosion, particularly starting around, you know, I would say in the 1960s, in the reaction to Vietnam, the counterculture, and uh, Richard Nixon's silent majority looking to, you know, intentionally go after this voting bloc. We'll come later, Patrick, to how Republicans have influenced these changing coalitional dynamics. But I, I interpret your analysis to say that the political realignment may be less of conservatives pulling working class voters to the side, their side and more about progressives pushing them away. Uh, what, what happened? What's contributed to the growing divorce of the working class from left wing politics? I mean, just going back to the historical moment, there was a moment historically, right, that, that, that is very apt. Uh, when we talk, we talk about a previous wave of realignment. So in 1968, 1972, you had 1970 in particular, you start to see these clashes, these protests between the hard hat workers in New York City and the anti-war protesters. And you see the, the cops and, uh, you know, the, the, the hard hat workers in the World Trade Center are beating up the anti-war protesters and the cops are doing nothing essentially about it. And this triggers this massive reaction inside the Nixon White House that's like, well, this is like something's going on here. You know, the old New Deal union coalition is falling apart and what can be done to move them with a conscious sort of acceptance of the fact among Pat Buchanan and people in the White House in particular that they haven't really done anything consciously in 1968. I mean, they did run ads on the crime, like, you know, crime, violent crime and, and things like that. But they hadn't really done anything consciously to affect this realignment. It was happening organically from the ground up. And what could they do to intentionally nurture this along? In the same way, I mean, I do think that this kind of ambled along in 2016 and, uh, you know, until 2016, and Republicans sort of got the benefit of some of these changes unintentionally. So even Mitt Romney does actually better in a state like Pennsylvania than, you know, and he started, actually there's an inkling that somebody may be up in Pennsylvania, that it was, it was not looking quite as unwinnable as it did before. And, but yeah, you know, it wasn't really, he, he clearly was not stylistically the kind of candidate who was going to advance this type of realignment. And then 2016 happens and you have Donald Trump, where I, I generally do think that was both a push and pull. Like you do, you did have a Democratic candidate in Hillary Clinton who was Ill, very ill suited to appeal to this coalition of voters in contrast with her husband that write about sort of the contrasting campaign styles between her and her husband. I mean, I think they do not lead to be belabored, but just the way she addressed the working class and addressed working class issues 
versus, you know, her husband who was a master at it and won, you know, you know, won a good, a good share of the white working class vote and the working class vote in general. But I do think Donald Trump himself, stylistically, it was a very much a reaction to him polarize. I mean, it polarized people on both sides, where people, I think, were uniquely responsive to his personality. But ultimately, this is where almost our destiny, the electorate's embracing its destiny in a way that because I think, as I think you know, this is a process that's been underway across a number of countries. Um, so to say that is uniquely a Trump phenomenon, it's a uniquely American phenomenon would be incorrect. The book argues that these developments are rooted in educational polarization. It made me wonder, Patrick, how zero sum they are in coalitional terms. Is it possible to develop a broad-based agenda and set of messages that can achieve a cross-educational, a cross-class coalition today? Yes and no. I mean, I do think that particularly when you, you dial up the polarization on one demographic, right, on education right now, that automatically means that, you know, other parts, you're pushing water into a different part of the balloon. So other parts of the balloon are going to deflate or whatever, the, whatever metaphor you want to use there. So you see racial polarization goes down because, you know, people, voters are racially cross-pressured. And but educationally, you know, if you have low education, lower education, lower educational attainment voters, that pretty much automatically means you're going to do better. But you're going to do somewhat better among Latino black voters who have far lower rates of college graduation and educational attainment. Right. And that is something, you know, David Shore here in the U.S. has really made the point that these two trends go hand in hand. Can you simultaneously appeal to both sides? Sure. I do think that, I, you know, in the on Earth 2, where Donald Trump is not on track to be the Republican nominee, if you had a Brian Kemp or a Gunn Youngkin, then I do think you would see less educational polarization. I think you would see uh, those candidates seem tailor-made appeal to. And that's what we actually saw in, in particularly Kemp's race in Georgia, where he did a really great job of appealing to some of those, you know, those disaffected former Romney Republicans and, you know, did 15 points better than Trump did in a lot of these areas, you know, particularly the more prosperous Atlanta suburbs. So just to take an ex- just to take his example. But I think it's the, the Trump coalition is kind of the template now, right? I mean, that's sort of the baseline that everybody starts from rather than it being a Romney McCain Bush baseline where, you know, you've got, you know, Republicans are going to win the country club vote by 20 to 30 points. That's not happening anymore. At best, they're going to draw even. And it's a question of do they lose it by 10 points or do they, you know, are they somewhat competitive with it? I've done some research on Canada's working class. Uh, One of our key findings, Patrick, is the modern working class is different than a lot of conservatives conceptualize it. It's increasingly comprised of people who care and serve others rather than make stuff. Talk about this perception and reality of the working class itself and how it may influence the ability of Republicans to incorporate working class interests and priorities into their agenda. I do think that work, place of work, is actually a proxy for, right? I mean, place of work is actually something that is gets ignored and that could be a huge lurking variable in a lot of our analysis. I mean, I've seen quite a bit of analysis that has shown that, you know, if you have non-college 
people who work in an office, they behave differently than, you know, non-college voters who are blue collar workers. What though, I think we've seen though, as the economy in the U.S. and throughout throughout the West and throughout, you know, really everywhere has shifted from manufacturing, you know, pure blue collar labor to maybe pink collar work. That has still led to a realignment along class lines, right? So uh, I, I don't know if it's as decisive. So you certainly have occupations that are in the public sector where unions are still strong. So that's why the union movement really hasn't flipped because it is primarily a movement of the public sector, not the private sector. And the, the interests of public sector workers are dramatically different than those of private sector workers. But nonetheless, you know, yes, we have seen that shift. It's something you'd be very, being very caught, need to be very cognizant of. But at the same time, these shifts have occurred even as manufacturing has gone down, perhaps because manufacturing is less of a, you know, it, because, you know, this is a much more embattled group that is trying to protect maybe something that uh, has been lost. I, I think the heuristic that, you know, I would maybe use here is that, you know, compare this to the 1980s, which side would you think would be upset if they closed the coal mine down, right? In the 1980s, you know, that Margaret Thatcher, it would have been the left, it would have been the socialists, you know, it would have been the socialists workers and the unions, and that, that's the side that would have been inclined Bradley murder if you shut a coal mine down. This time, this, this time, it's, it's, the, it's the folks on the right, you know, who, and the people who are doing it are, you know, most likely responsible. I mean, obviously market forces, but the people, you know, who are believed to be responsible are these environmental, environmentalists on the left. So I think that kind of that kind of encapsulates the shift we've seen, particularly in the blue collar sector. And it leads to a broader question about possible tensions between Republican orthodoxy and the party's new evolving coalition. What kind of adjustments need to be made to Republican policies to be more responsive to the working class members of its coalition? And what are the obstacles to those adjustments? Everybody wants a very neat and tidy answer from, okay, how do we serve the members of this coalition? And I am, you know, although I'm bullish on this realignment and the political effects of this realignment, I'm uncertain about what the effects of, let's say, shifting the party's policy agenda would be because in a lot of ways, I'm not sure it matters that much. That in a lot of ways, a lot of these shifts have happened despite there being very little in terms of shifting policy commitments. I think what is true is that some issues matter more than others. So in the United States, you have various think tanks, but specifically one called American Compass that has really tried to challenge the existing dogma and orthodoxy in terms of the, you know, republic and what it sees as the Republican message that is too cozy with Wall Street, too tied to globalization, free trade. And, you know, is advancing a series of policy ideas that does accept more like government intervention in markets, industrial policy, those sorts of policies that you would typically associate with the old labor left or a version of the old labor left. 
So they recently released a survey of Republican voters that found that, you know, really all the members of this coalition are what they're really concerned about is cultural issues. They're not paying, paying really attention any, at all to any of these programmatic issues and economic policy issues. They, they are voting on the economy, but not in, not on the policies. They're voting on economic performance by the incumbent and they're voting on inflation, um, but not really responding to policies. I think with the exception of the issue of free trade and globalization, which I think is, and Trump specifically, be, in response to his strong messaging on that. And, and that is, I think, coded as, you know, we're going to stand up for American interests first over and above foreign interests, right? I think that's a very different sort of message than saying, oh, yeah, we need to be more open to social welfare spending, which I believe a large portion of the Republican base, and particularly even the Republican base in Hispanic communities, is averse to, right, in the sense of uh, people just don't want, and a lot of folks, and this is true in my polling specifically, do not want handouts. I mean, there's, there's sort of this very stark and clear aversion to that, particularly among Hispanics. But I do think that, you know, it's a little bit more complicated because I wish I could say, well, there's a clear answer <laughs> programmatically to what Republicans should do, what policies they should adopt. But I think, you know, a lot of this is happening largely without any kind of shift at all. Uh, and to the extent a shift is happening on some of these economic ideas, it's largely restricted to free trade agreements, immigration. And, you know, Trump is is to some extent out there saying, yeah, we won't cut Social Security. But Actually, that's that's pretty unpopular across the board. You don't have to be a populist or working class Republican to not like that. <laughs> like even the sort of free market Republicans don't like that. One way that I've thought about the political realignment is that the left and the right are in something of a race to respond to these developments. A response from the left would be to subordinate identity politics or wokeism or whatever one calls it that has caused it to chase away some of these working class voters for the right. It means making some adjustments to economic orthodoxy, perhaps not as much as sometimes it's interpreted, but at least, as you say, as it relates to free trade and globalization. In such a contest, I have to give the advantage to the right because economics is more malleable than culture. Do you agree? Is there any scenario where the left moderates on culture in your mind? I don't. I don't. I mean, I, I think that the early this year, there was at least a boomlet of discourse among central left pundits about whether or not Joe Biden was successfully recreating the Obama 2012 or Bill Clinton 1996 re-election strategy in terms of really talking up issues like semiconductors, competing with China, social security, and really trying to make the divide around economic populism or the left-leaning version of economic populism. And that just doesn't seem to have been continued or sustained, right? I mean, maybe there's an intention to sustain it. He signed the infrastructure law. He continues to talk about his accomplishments. And that continues to fall on deaf ears because of, uh, you know, the continued fallout from the inflation uh, of 2021 and 2022 and continuing uh, virtually throughout the entirety of, of, of Biden's term. So I do agree with that. But look at the contrast, I think, between where Biden is now and what Democrats are now and what, like, say, Bill Clinton was able to do. Bill Clinton 
who, you know, famously said, we want abortion to be safe, legal, rare, but Clinton, who had the sister soldier moment where he's going after a rapper for <laughs> illicit rap, you know, for uh, offensive rap lyrics, to signing welfare reform, to back then the issue has changed, but assigned the Defense of Marriage Act. I mean, all of these things that were really high profile pokes in the eye at the cultural left. Now, that would look different today if, if, if somebody tried to do it today. But I don't think anyone's trying it because I think they can perceive that the risks are too great to their own coalition, to their own base, to their own fundraising potential. And there's sort of a sense that, you know, Trump is not really, you know, moderating or, or dialing, toning down his message. Right. And so why should we do the same? Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday, a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. Let me follow up, Patrick, and ask about those possible tensions on the right. You mentioned the work that American Compass, led by Orrin Cass, has been doing to try to, in effect, develop a a policy agenda that better reflects the interests and needs and aspirations of these new members of the Republican coalition. But I would note that there's pretty uh, strenuous opposition from other conservative intellectuals to that effort. It, it sort of prompts the question, are conservatives and Republicans prepared to accept any changes to party orthodoxy, including on issues of, of free trade and globalization? I mean, I do think you said economics is malleable among voters. It's malleable, really. I don't think anyone's voting on economic philosophy. No one's voting on who was right, Milton, you know, Milton Friedman or, or Keynes, right? And no one really thinks like that. But um, there are religious, really zealous religious rival loyalties around that in Beltway think tanks and uh, the internecine warfare around that, even on the right is quite something. So I take a step back. I was briefly in a think tank role, but I haven't been been in one in very a very long time. So I come at this from a different perspective, from a more political perspective. And I think that the you know the mood of the voters in the party is very much look, I mean, I think that this idea that Republicans were ever a party of free trade it's complete bunk. It's complete nonsense. No one ever prioritized free trade. And nobody ever, you know, was really in their heart of hearts, you know, a, you know, laugher curve, espousing tax, you know, marginal rate cuts are great. And no one, no one is saying, no one has ever said that that is among their top 10 policy priorities. It was always the policy priority of the, of the elite, right? Uh, in think tank community. And, you know, that's what happens, right, to some extent when, you know, when power is, those people get to get to drive the agenda. But in terms of the party at the grassroots level, when you look at the intensity in the Bush years around immigration, uh, you look at the intensity around, you know, particularly when there's times of national threat, national emergency around 9-11, even today, you see this 
upsurge of sentiment uh, around Israel, that those a lot of the those are the issues that you know voters feel passionately about uh, much more so than sort of what direction economic policy goes. And so I think that that is what the shift has been mostly about. And when it comes to, I think, the mood of the voter, Republican voters around immigration, I think there's a tension of, yeah, I mean, I don't think we, you know, I I think that the policies that, you know, are, you know, specifically, let's say, targeted at, you know, business growth, are not going to have broad resonance and purchase among among actual voters. But there's still kind of this, you know, sense, and you go back to 2020, when, you know, we were attacking, so socialism was kind of at the forefront. Uh, this idea, you know, never before really, and, you know, in the modern era, at least, has socialism been a boogeyman. And yet that was kind of at the forefront of the Republican campaign in 2020, and particularly in places like Little Havana and Miami and among Hispanic voters and things like that in immigrant communities that resonated, you know, that doesn't suggest to me that, you know, I mean, it suggests to me that, you know, there's a core of, I think, Republican belief and conservative belief that still abides by, you know, we are a capitalist free market, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And that's really the mentality. I think that, that I think that particularly the, the economic left populace really kind of underestimate that that still exists and that coexists very strongly, I think, within this working class Republican coalition. I want to ask you about the multiracial dynamic reflected in the book's subtitle. What's going on there, Patrick? What explains GOP growth with minority voters in a world in which it's regularly called out for racism? How does one reconcile that obvious tension? So back when I was first conceiving of this book in 2019, the example that I used, and I hope it's a correct, I hope I have this right, was really what the Fords did in Toronto, because I, I, that struck me as far more advanced, uh, you know, a far more advanced coalitional dynamic than, let's say, Republicans had, had, had achieved in the sense of, you know, I think there was a sense that, you know, working class immigrants were very gettable for the right or for candidates of the right in Canada, uh, whereas Republicans were coming off the disastrous 2012 election and autopsy uh, when they're uh, kind of milling around for, uh, you know, in the dumps trying to figure out what are we ever going to do to win these voters over. And that example, I think, got used a lot that look at look at what was done in Canada specifically. And so I, I do think that, you know, there have been traditional racial voting patterns. I think this is true throughout the West world, but it's especially true in the U.S., among, especially among African-American voters, where there is near unanimous democratic support or has been near unanimous democratic support. So, you know, my argument is not that, well, these groups are going to become Republican overnight, because I, I do think that that's the that's the sort of boulderization of this uh, of this argument, right? That why even bother if they're not going to be 50 percent? But I'm like, no, but if I move from you from 10 to 15 percent, that's actually the same as moving another person from 50 to 55 percent. And that actually makes quite a bit of difference, right, uh, in, in the in the grand scheme of things, right, uh, in election, in election. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that specifically what we have had in the United States is very racially polarized and divided politics, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century. And I think we've seen that diminishing, that reaches a peak in the Obama era, I think, where you have this sort of positive upsurge of, you know, rallying behind, uh, you know, the first African-American president. Um, it was a very proud moment for people, but it was akin to John F. Kennedy in 1960 
winning 78% of white Catholics, right? I mean, and, and that turned out to be not this like sign of this emerging coalition, but it turned out to be the last gasp of the coalition, the last hurrah, let's say, where, okay, well, you know, actually Catholics were on sort of a little bit of a downswing of their political power when that happened. And now white Catholics are a Republican leading group in the electorate. So I think much the same is happening here. There was justifiable pride in the Obama elections that hasn't been able to be duplicated for obvious reasons and hasn't been able to be duplicated even by even if choosing Kamala Harris for VP, for example. I mean, and I doubt it will be duplicated again. Talk, Patrick, about the Republican Party's use of what you might describe as anti-wokeism to counterintuitively reach racial voters. I, I think, for instance, of the disproportionate place, the idea of so-called Latinx played in the last election cycle. I think, again, this miscalculation by the left that uh, this is the wokeism, or however you term it. I mean, it's obviously, you know, obviously a pretty, it can, it's, it can be oversimplified, but it is a strategy by the left to mobilize minority voter turnout in the absence of Obama. That you see a conscious increase in racial rhetoric by Hillary Clinton and a backlash against Bernie Sanders for not using racial rhetoric, particularly in the wake of Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, Missouri, that, you know, Sanders is really the one in the, Demo- in the Democratic in the Democratic primary in 2020. Sanders was the candidate of the far left. And yet Clinton, the candidate of the moderate center, is the one who is more comfortable using his woke rhetoric around gender, race, and wins. A lot of the African-American vote based on, you know, kind of the loyalty, you know, the loyalty and the goodwill that she earned serving Obama. But as a result, I mean, you know, what kind of happens in the general election, she wins, right, the primary. But in the general election, that message turns out to be just a complete loser from the standpoint of voters just don't want really want to hear candidates talk that much about race. I mean, people would, a lot of people would rather just avoid the issue. Uh, And I think that's true really across the racial divide that no one, I think, would really say, I would really, what I really want you to hear you talk about is interlocking layers of oppression as opposed to what are you going to do to put food on my table? Like nobody really says that. And I think black voters don't really say that either. I think there's obviously a different perspective on racial issues. But I think in terms of, uh, you know, there's a chapter in my book where I actually go through some of the opinions, specific opinions of Black Democrats, Hispanic Democrats, and white college-educated Democrats. And white college-educated Democrats are more progressive on every single issue, including racial issues. than those. And that's really who's driving a lot of this. And that's really who's driving, you know, them to go overboard or, you know, even... To the extent you talked about, you know, to what extent are progressives pushing voters away, even to the extent of the Palestine discourse right now, right? They can't shake that, right? I mean, there's still that's still a major part of the coalition because a lot a lot of people in the coalition want to talk about it. And so they can't really step away from it and they can't really sister soldier, you know, uh, those people, right? And that is, you know, that's a, a tough dynamic, I think, to reconcile. That's a good segue, Patrick. One group that conservatives in the U.S. and Canada have been bullish about in the past several months before the events of October 7th is Muslims. Issues around educational curriculum and parental rights 
seemed to represent an entry point for Muslims into the conservative coalition. The reaction to Hamas's horrific attacks against Israel, however, have disrupted these efforts and opportunities. Talk about that. Can Muslims find a home on the right, or is there something ultimately incompatible there? It's a very tough, tough question. But I think that actually, at least what's happening in the U.S. is, you know, is polling recently out by the Arab American Institute showing Trump ahead by more than two to one against against Biden. And obviously, there's a huge undecided. But there's a sense that they were already trending pretty right in, in those communities, particularly in Michigan, particularly like you look at the gap between vote, votes on the abortion referendum in Michigan and, you know, and, uh, you know, Muslim and Arab precincts in Detroit, in the Detroit area. Uh, and, you know, a, and there's also been a very a big swing, right, even in the middle of, you know, the 2022 midterms in that state, which did not go well. Or Republicans in 2022 and Michigan in particular. So I think there was a sense that things have been trending. And this actually, these events may trend them further, but purely in reaction to the administration, not in terms of anything substantively in the Republican Party. And, you know, I think at some level, I think that will possibly prevent Trump from really taking or, 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 or really saying, really going all out or be perceived as going all out for Israel. I think his position is going to be, yes, we all support, you know, obviously like we support Israel, but then, you know, he had these very strange comments. Well, Hezbollah is very smart, but I think what he's going to say is like, well, the whole region was not at war when I was president. So everyone was better off. Jews, Muslims, everyone was better off under Trump. So I think that's how he's going to really message that issue. And so, yes, I do think that there's something about that. You know, Republicans could very well gain votes in specifically in Michigan because of these events. And there's something uncomfortable, there's something very uncomfortable about that. But it's not because of anything that they've done. Really, it's, you know, it's really a reaction to the perceived, well, the administration is supporting Israel. And therefore, you know, we want to cast a vote against Biden as a result. I was just saying, in parentheses, Patrick, we, we're witnessing the inverted dynamic here in Canada where the country's center-left government, whose caucus contains a, a number of Arab or, or Muslim Canadian members of parliament, have taken a more moderate position than the Conservative Party on the attacks on October 7th and their aftermath. And that's been perceived. In fact, it's been well reported that that reflects, at least in part, an effort by the government to preserve support with Arab and Muslim communities, particularly in and around the city of Toronto. So we're seeing those issues play out in Canadian politics, but it sounds like perhaps a bit differently than, than you are there. Let me put up an ultimate question to you. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Trump. Is Donald Trump a help or a hindrance on the path of this new multiracial working class Republican coalition? I think he is a help to... Let's say if you're bullish on this coalition being kind of the future of the Republican Party, he's a help to that. He may be a hindrance, though, to the Republican Party's overall prospects in 2024. I think those those are probably two different things. So I don't really, I didn't write this book to make a prediction about 2024, although everything within it seems to, as I've written, seems to have continued to hold up in terms of Biden 
Biden's numbers are particularly weak among non-white voters, even heading into 2024. But I think those are two different things. I do think that there is a sense, yes, Biden, Trump has alienated a lot of voters that he didn't need to alienate. I think in general, if you look forward 10 years, maybe, maybe, you know, who knows if Donald Trump will still be around. <laughs> I mean, I'm not actually not, not, not optimistic that he won't be, right? But in the sense of, you know, maybe continuing to run, because why wouldn't he? He seems to be doing pretty well, right? <laughs> so why wouldn't he, why would he stop? But no, I would say that, uh, yeah, I, I do think there is a real sense in which, yes, the Republican Party has underperformed in certain areas and college educated white voters in the Atlanta suburbs. If you could fix that problem like Brian Kemp has, then Georgia comes back online. Arizona probably comes back online. There are a lot of problems Trump has created. And as he has gone on, I think his appeal has become less potent, and especially in the 2022 midterms. Now, that said, even a weekend Trump could win in 2024. Even a can, you know, I don't know about a convicted Trump, but even an indicted Trump could certainly win in 2024 against what is in the White House now. So I think it's always a choice in that sense. But uh, yeah, I do, I do you know, I, I, I'm more of the sense that he's now more, more of a hindrance to the overall electoral success of the Republican Party. I think he will continue to, this coalition would re- definitely remain intact, even if there were, even if Trump were not the candidate, but it would definitely remain intact if he is. Yeah, that's a good lead into my final question. Do you think that this coalition has long-term durability? And if so, what should listeners be looking for as signs that it's effectively happened? So I think that, you know, it'll be very interesting to see. There have been, Nate Cohn of the New York Times has has a a number of great pieces on Biden's problems with non-white voters and low propensity and particularly low turnout voters. So the real challenge, right, for Trump and both candidates, I mean, is mobilizing these voters because I don't think it's they're necessarily at this point choosing between Trump and Biden so far as whether they're going to cast a vote at all in the election. So, you know, it could be that in a lower turnout election where everyone's just very dispirited, I think that could hurt Trump in a sense of because that's what you had in 2022 was a lower turnout uh, a lower turnout election where a lot of the working class voters that were trending towards towards Republicans just really didn't show up very much at all. And so, you know, it may be paradoxically, this is very different than the conventional wisdom about who high turnout benefits. But paradoxically, you could find, well, you just see unenthused voter turnout. And, you know, so it really is, you know, folks who were committed voters, you know, on these in these groups. Are often very democratic, right? But it's really the non-voters or the voters who are sort of on the margins of the process that are really kind of rethinking. They don't really have any institutional commitment to the Democratic Party, uh, like previous generations did. So uh, I, I, I do think that, though. I, I think looking at the, you know, if you see, you know, it's a smaller state in the electoral map, but if you do see a state like Nevada go Republican. Right. That would be a sign if you see Republicans make something of a breakthrough or potentially win Georgia, if they can continue to narrow like margins among African-Americans, start a very big voting block. And again, they don't have to win those votes and they don't have to get very many votes. Uh, but in particular, if they can shore up their position in a lot of these Sunbelt states like they have in Florida, spectacularly, that would be a good, a decent sign. That this coalition has, you know, is starting to take shape 
But, you know, I, I really look at the end. It's like, I, I don't even think about 2024 as sort of the end point. It's like, what does, what would things look like? What would things need to look like in 2036 when the country is on the verge of becoming, at least according to the census, a majority minority country? What would things need to look like and what levels of performance would Republicans need to have among non-white voters in general? to, you know, have a majority and not just an electoral college majority, because, you know, this coalition actually helps you in the electoral college, right? But but actually win the popular vote. And, you know, what you would need to see is roughly 40% of all nine white voters are going Republican. Uh, and that could potentially be higher than the number of white college educated voters who are going Republican at that point. The true groups could kind of intersect uh, in the way that, you know, would have been very surprising in 2012. Yeah, well, that's a, a ton of insight that uh, our listeners will no doubt follow. And it reflects the insight uh, that one can find in the book, The Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. Patrick Ruffini, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.